Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. This episode is all about habitat. We chat through the human relationship to habitat and how that has changed over time, the extreme importance of habitat for our health and well-being, and some strategies to optimize your environment and experience of habitat in your daily life. This week's episode is sponsored by TFC Events. We're stoked to finally be heading off this week to tour our brand new feet balance and play workshop over the next fortnight. We can't wait to catch up with the tribe down south after a bit of a COVID hiatus. Our first stop is Sydney for two workshops next Saturday on the 27th of March. In the morning, we'll be at Fitness Culture in Bondi and in the afternoon, we'll cross the harbour and head to Movement HQ at French's Forest. The following weekend, we'll be in Melbourne for another workshop on Saturday the 3rd of April at CrossFit Soul Rebel in Thornbury. That'll be followed in the afternoon by a natural running workshop hosted by fellow foot nerd and mate Mick Breen. There's still tickets available to all of the events. To book your spot, follow the link in our show notes or head to the events tab on our website at tfc-shopaus.com. We can't wait to see you all there. All right, you're back with James and Mac, and this episode is going to be all about habitat. So this is heavily inspired by the chapter on habitat by Frank Ferencic in his book, New Old Way, which is one of the required readings for the Footnote program and is now both one of both of our favorite books of all time. Big time. Yeah, <laughs> massively. It's a very, very, very powerful book, and he touches on a lot of different topics and not to summarize the whole book but it's all about the the sort of dichotomy between the old way or the ancestral way of living and the new way or the modern way of living and how we can sort of take the best of both worlds and apply that to our own lives so and it's a way I think he puts it as well he he has a way of writing Frank that is it seems so simple and and the way he explains things just makes so much sense uh, and it's not like it's new information that you're hearing for the first time but when it's put into the context that he put it, puts it into it yeah it just makes so much sense yeah and that's the power of good writing I suppose and good story is it might not be necessarily new information but yeah the the way in which it's expressed is can be very powerful and can really hit home and I think for both of us that book has really hit home in a lot of ways and yeah we're we're pretty excited to take you know I guess the cliff notes or the main points and chat about them and get it out there but also highly recommend reading the book and getting the book yourself. Very much so yeah very much so. So in the spirit of that we'll start off the podcast with a little excerpt from the start of the Habitat chapter, and Mac is the orator <laughs> of this duo. Uh, he can, he can, he's got a good speaking voice. So we'll we'll chuck him on the the excerpt, and uh, then we'll we'll expand on all the points. Yeah, a little or not so little excerpt, but yeah, we think it's probably pretty key to to give context to. It's a good way to what, start what we're about to explain. But he starts with a, a bit of an analogy, so. Imagine the moment of your birth, deep in prehistory, somewhere on the semi-wooded mosaic grasslands of Africa. Your tribe has been hunting and gathering with, with some success in recent years, and your mother is healthy, strong and active, right up until the moment of truth. The big day comes, and from the moment you leave your mother's body, you're exposed to a world of plants, animals, soil, and most importantly, perhaps, immense numbers of microorganisms. 
Almost instantly, they begin colonizing your body, and before long, they're multiplying, metabolizing, and forming countless chemical and genetic relationships with every cell in your body. In the days to come, mum carries you from camp to camp in her arms or wrapped in an animal skin, which exposes you to yet more microbial life. If she's busy, she sets you down in the soft grass, and before long, you're crawling around, becoming ever more intimate with your habitat. Even when you begin to walk, you're still absorbing the living earth through your bare feet. As you grow, your physiology develops in tandem with your microbiome, and barring some major illness, infection, or predator attack, you'll grow up strong and healthy. Your habitat is not only on you, it's also in you. You are literally one with the biosphere. But microbes are just the beginning. In a natural setting, your bond with habitat is reinforced in every moment of every day. Natural light floods your eyes and even receptors in your skin, synchronizing clock cells throughout your body and keeping your physiology on track. The food you eat comes directly from your bioregion, and every bite brings your body into closer harmony with the physiology of the land itself. Sensation tightens the bond even further. Every touch of plants, animals, soil and moisture is recorded directly onto your body and brain. By the time you reach adulthood, you will know your world in intimate tissue-level detail. Sadly, this kind of origin story is almost unknown in our modern alien environment. Today we're born into sanitised settings that have no resemblance to our ancestral world. From the very beginning, the surfaces we touch are smooth and even sterile. The microbes we do encounter are from hospital cribs and gowns. And ecologically speaking, they're arbitrary. Later, we go home to dwellings that are also isolated from natural light, textures, sounds, and soils. We may be several years old before we even have a meaningful experience, a contact with natural habitat. And for some people, the experience never occurs at all. It's no exaggeration to say many of us in the modern world are habitat and microbe de deprived. It's no wonder our bodies and our minds are suffering. When habitat changes so radically, our intimate billion-year-old partnership with the microbial world is broken. Powerful stuff. Mm. And I just love how that process of imagining and picturing yourself in a, in a different context and essentially telling that story of how we would have experienced it the world... It hits home, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of, it just, it's more powerful than just explaining it. But he hits on so many points just in that story about, I guess, the difference between the modern environment and the ancestral environment. And it paints that picture of, of a ancestral environment as, you know, quite wild and alive with, you know, lots of bacteria and obviously animals and mm. this dynamic immersive environment that we're born into and that understanding or that uh, recognition of that environment as part of us uh, and you know i guess in the in the new way or in the modern world we we see the environment as quite separate and this is a very new thing where we are literally part of the environment because we're animals. And There's almost a layer of fear attached to, to exposure to that environment. Yeah, now. this unknown wilderness and it's, it's dangerous. And, and of course, yes, it is dangerous. Like, of course, nature can be dangerous. And 
there is like there's a lot of you know sure bacteria can cause infections and animals can be predators and you know weather weather events can be uh, very dangerous to health but there's and so there are a lot of benefits to that sort of modern environment and, and some protection in that but at the same time that comes at a pretty big cost having that separateness and that disconnection from nature as well especially in the more chronic lifestyle disease related things that we've talked a lot about on the podcast before and it's probably not something you see in those early days i mean you know when you're a child and you're wrapped up in cotton wool and protected and and it's not parents fault i mean no. parents feel like they're doing the right thing for their kids by protecting them from that wild outside world mm. but it's hard to know the true the true toll or the true impact years and years down the track and yeah i guess the long-term impact on on kids and and adults well yeah it's hard to know i think it's hard to know the full degree of it but there's certainly finding out more and more Mm. about how much that really matters so there's you know in the modern way then we we like to sterilize things and you know get rid of get rid of all the bacteria as much as we can and i guess concrete things <laughs> make these urban environments that are easy to get around on and ride bikes on and drive cars on and footpaths for us to walk on and this whole landscaped area that again s- serves to deepen that separateness or that feeling of separateness and Mm. and that view of the environment as other and and sure we might go and visit nature and even thoroughly enjoy nature a lot a lot of people obviously love to get out in nature but it's still that sort of like oh wow that's nature um you know it's that separateness and you know you take a photo and be on your way and and you know chuck it up on instagram and yeah and i think i think even the word habitat itself you know, I remember when we were learning as children in schools about animals and their habitat and how important the role of an animal's habitat it plays in their survival. But, but us as humans, I don't think we would often use the word habitat to describe the place in which we live. Um, there's a disconnect from that that word itself because yeah. I, I suppose, you know, it feels so far removed from, from nature. But yeah. really we should be we should be using that word as uh, to describe the place that we live and therefore adapting it. Yeah, our language is more around our house, our neighbourhood, our city mm. and and so on. And yeah, if we start to view, actually, this is our habitat now. <laughs> and sure, like we said, there's plenty of benefits to living in a city, um, especially sort of in that sort of short-term survival kind of concept. But acknowledging that our habitat has a very strong connection with our health is a really big step in the right direction of taking more control of our health and and being more empowered about how we experience um, our health and our life. So mm. I like the, the concept of um, biophilia, uh, which is, I think, what Frank talks about in that book. He talks about how the modern 
understanding of that word. So biophilia is like the, the love of nature or the, yeah. um, uh, like the affiliation with nature. But the modern understanding of that is like, oh, I love nature. Like it's, <laughs> there's furry animals yeah. and, you know, sunny days and creeks. And, and I've certainly fallen into that sort of that type of biophilia where it's like, oh, it's so amazing. And, and you know, I love spending time out there. But the true sense of the word and I guess the ancestral understanding is more that a kinship and affiliation with nature and understanding that you're a part of it and, and that, you know, if you die, then you go back into nature mm. and it's not the end of the world if you die or if someone dies and it's it's part of the, the cycle of life. And, mm. and I think there's a lot of... A lot of problems that can come from that 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 separateness that disconnect yeah yeah. and he he puts he puts it into good context as well where he describes um i guess wilderness as being a bit of a construct uh, you know of our modern alien lives and and the way we we describe going from the city into the wilderness and and the wilderness yeah like you said being this this dangerous unknown unknown natural place with predators and Really, wilderness is, again, it's just a word we've used to describe, I guess, the, the contrast to the world that we've created. Yeah. And in, I really like the analogy of, like, we've essentially created a zoo for ourselves. Yeah. The, the self-created zoo. And we're all these zoo humans getting around in this very unnatural environment. And, and almost, we have the freedom to go out into the wilderness if we want. Yeah. But we've created these mental barriers and psychological barriers to doing that. And I guess skill barriers as well in that we just don't have the skills to survive in that natural environment anymore because we haven't been exposed to it. And an interesting thing with zoo animals is that <laughs> there's plenty of research to show that they don't do very well health-wise. They, you know, they start to get frustrated and they... People, you'll observe them overeating or undereating and oversleeping and signs of depression and mental instability mm. and a lot, a lot of other physical issues as well. And none of these are ever witnessed in animals in a wild or natural environment. And likewise with humans, when they study tribal populations who do live natural, do live in that more ancestral way without... That uh, haven't had contact yeah. with modern lifestyles, then they have far, far... Well, they have basically non-existent rates of chronic lifestyle diseases because, yes, they may die more of infections and predation and, and things like that. Mm. And people will go, oh, well, you know, they had a terrible life expectancy back in the day and, and all of that, but their qu- their quality of life and their quality of health and their connection with the land is so much deeper mm. and so much better. And so one could argue that, you know, life expectancy, life expectancy is one thing, but that quality of life and that feeling of connection with your habitat is arguably a lot more important. And I think something that really hit home for me when I was reading this chapter is the way that he describes um, the contrast between indigenous cultures and what, I guess, white man coming to this country Mm. Uh, and bringing our culture uh, or you know the cultures of european nations here to australia i mean we we often think of the damage that it's done to indigenous cultures um that arrival of white man but 
in contrast, we probably don't often think about the damage that it did to the white man as well. And, and, and obviously on nowhere near as grand a scale, but we wonder, you know, we wonder why, I, I guess, uh, essentially we, we were never meant to live on this country. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, you know, European settlers um, displaced from, themselves, displaced themselves from, yeah, the climate and, um, the culture and, and brought themselves to a, a land, on, to an island. Um, yeah, and the, yeah, like you said, we, we can acknowledge and really see the effects of the trauma that mm. we've uh, inflicted by displacing Indigenous, you know, not just in Australia, but all over the world. Um, indigenous and Native populations have been horribly affected by the displacement and the disconnection from their land. Being forced to move you know, from yeah. their homes. Uh, Which is a, a very deep issue and, and, you know, we could talk probably for a whole podcast about the concepts of mm. colonisation and all of that. But, yeah, the, the it is a, um, a very... It's a good thing to know that we've done that to ourselves in the same process of industrialization and colonisation is spread out, spread ourselves all across the world and being displaced from our natural habitat and that's where a lot of these things i mean a, a good example is uh you know the the dangers of the sun mm. and very much so yeah. you know the the sun is dangerous to us in australia to a degree i think it's very important to note that sunlight is good for you in the mm. right dosage but the levels of sunlight and uv and so on in australia our white skin and especially those from you know highland or places where there was a lot of rain like england and scotland and places where there's usually a lot of cloud cover and mm. and rain and and not as much sunlight our skin essentially evolved in that environment and now we're in a different environment um which doesn't have the same levels of sunlight and so that's part of the confusion as to Oh, why is you know why is the sun dangerous? You know, but it's, but it's down to what our genes or the the, uh, the environment that our genes evolved in and what our environment gets. Uh, and we simply haven't evolved quickly enough yeah. yet to to be able to withstand it. And I mean, it's not just a f the physical impacts, but I'm sure you know it, it's hard to quantify. But the mental health Psycho impacts, you know, yeah. the, the psychological impacts of of being displaced i'd say displaced from our you know, i guess our homeland quote unquote and which is sort of what frank's getting out there but mm. also i also yeah the displacement from nature yeah by all of this technology that we've developed and yeah again we're not really against technology and we're not against technology <laughs> and, and having a house and and so on we're recording like we, a podcast in, in into this, a computer with a phone filming it <laughs> I mean, yeah, in this cushy <laughs> apartment but it's it's about just being aware of those effects and taking steps in your life to uh, counteract some of those negative effects for sure so to get a little bit deeper on that we're just going to talk about the health habitat connection mm. and there's a few good, really good examples, but we'll just chat about, uh, I guess, the basis for that health habitat connection. And this really comes down to the study of epigenetics. And that is the study of how our environment affects the expression of our DNA. So for, the, for a good chunk of time, the understanding was that our genes determined, you know, the 
our, like a genetic blueprint determined how we look, how, you know, how tall we are and how our eye color and hair color and all of these things about us. And, and, you know, the genes were that structure and that also determined a lot of our health outcomes. So, you know, it's, you know, heart disease is, is, is in my family, it's in my genes and bunions and, you know, X, Y, Z, you name it. Oh, that's just my genes. Mm. That was the sort of common understanding. And more recently over the last few decades, there's been a lot more understanding and research coming out about how critical of a role the environment plays in the expression of our genes. So you can think about our, our genes or our genetic code as like the blueprint. And then that, that was, would be called our genotype. Mm. And then the expression of those genes, because certain genes can turn on or off. And that will change a lot about how our body is structured and function, uh, how it expresses its structure and function. Mm. Uh, and that is basically our, called our phenotype. So the genes are the blueprint and the, pheno, uh, the expression is like, the, I guess, the builder or the, the actual... Yeah, expression of that blueprint. Yeah, right. And the environment plays a huge role on... The environment, I suppose, our life experience plays a huge... In fact, probably a much bigger component uh, on the overall result of that. There you go. So, especially when it comes to health. Mm. Um, I, I think I like it. I just thought of an example before, actually, is just... In terms of gene, obviously genes will restrict certain capabilities and certain outcomes, and especially when it comes to congenital conditions, things that people are born with. But for example, we can't we can't learn to breathe underwater because our genetic structure won't allow that. So we're we're not fish. Fish have a genetic structure and a genetic code that codes for having gills and a way to process oxygen through water. We don't have that. But what we can do is vastly improve our ability to interact with water and to hold our breath and to, you know, these mammalian dive reflex and reflexes and various things through exposure to water. So the you know the thing the challenges that we impose on ourselves through our lifestyle and our environment can vastly change the genetic expression. So it's just an interesting, mm. uh, interesting concept there. So, of course, there's limitations to genes. <laughs> we can't do anything that we want by exposure to environment, but the exposure vastly changes the uh, expression of those genes. And I guess when you you think of that on a in the context of, of how we live our lives, and then I guess you're suggesting that how what we expose ourselves to really can change our health Mm -hmm. yeah and that's and we've talked about a lot in the past about the the mismatch hypothesis of of where our genes evolved in a certain environment a natural environment a natural habitat and yeah we we've very in the terms of an evolutionary scale we've very rapidly found ourselves in this zoo this very mismatched environment where our sleep is very different our exposure to light which affects the sleep our food is very different our movement is 
very different and very lacking. Mm. Um, and, you know, even our just relationship with community and everything is, is very different too. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the basis of that health habitat connection. Yeah. And so, like I said, the environment greatly influences our phenotype or the expression of our genes. And we can look at the environment in two different ways. One is the internal environment. And you can think, I like to think about that as essentially the, the culture, well, uh, Bruce Lipton is the guy, I almost forgot his name. <laughs> Bruce Lipton's like the, the father of epigenetics. He was one of the pioneers when it came to figuring out how stem cells change their action <clears throat> in response to being put in different culture mediums in a Petri dish. And so then he talks about how our blood is like the culture medium of our body and so he's written a book called the biology of belief which i also highly recommend reading or listening to on audible but he talks about how our beliefs and our emotions and our mindset which are all obviously very closely tied of course will affect the culture medium of our blood through the changing the change in stress hormones and all of these you know, uh, like neurotransmitters and things like that that are influenced by our thoughts and beliefs mm. and emotions. And the culture medium of our blood then affects the health of our cells and the expression of our DNA within those cells. And so uh, we've talked before about how stress and inflammation is so closely linked to every chronic lifestyle disease, mental and physical. And so... That's where what he's getting at essentially with the biology of belief is that your beliefs and your perceptions on the world will directly influence your health through changing the culture medium of your blood. And I think it's something that most people probably would understand. I mean, when it's explained, most people would think, okay, well, yeah, stress isn't good for me. Mm. But until it's actually made clear that that can really seriously actually impact your health, I mean... For, for me myself and my, my former job I was stressed a lot of the time mm-hmm. and found myself getting sick quite often um, and since removing myself from that environment um, you know, and being more aware I suppose of the impacts that stress can have on your health and also having the mindset I suppose that when you do start feeling sick not letting the idea of yourself getting ill uh, perpetuate that illness and, mm-hmm. and make it worse a positive attitude and a positive mindset it, it again it, it's hard to quantify but you can feel it in your body the positive impact that that can have on your health yeah and it makes such a huge difference to how you recover and then also just the knowledge of the fact that what you expose yourself to directly influences your immune system and everything then that that feeling of empowerment of oh i'm getting sick okay i need to start looking really looking after my diet and start sleeping more and you know really what what can i look at in my environment uh, and lifestyle to help my immune system fight this off rather than oh, sh- oh damn i'm sick again like it happens like, oh why me like i'm always getting sick exactly and, and so on and that actually is bad for your immune system which makes yeah. which perpetuates that cycle so yeah, it's a really good point. And I think you also found that... Didn't you find that you started dreaming? Yeah. Or you started remembering your dreams for the first time? Hugely. When you yeah. quit work? And for someone who... Like, I honestly didn't remember the last time I, I would, I'd would i woken up and 
vividly remembered what I'd been dreaming about that night and sort of figured that I maybe just hadn't been dreaming for <laughs> for the last, you know, God knows how long. Um, but yeah, the first week after leaving my last job um, and removing myself from a situation that, you know, had uh, had built up stress in me, um, yeah, I, I remembered the dreams and, yeah. and you know, for... For three or four days straight, um, was waking up and remembering those dreams uh, better than I ever had uh, or I can ever remember. Mm. Um, and that's a really good sign of sleep quality and sleep efficiency and the fact that you're actually getting through some proper sleep cycles. Whereas, again, we know that stress, high levels of stress and chronic stress is very poor, is very bad for sleep quality. And mm. that's that's interesting feedback. But I think, I think the big issue is not enough value or weight is given to that uh whether it's your lack of stress or the the high the quality of your sleep um people don't value that enough i know i didn't value it enough um getting a good night's sleep and and dreaming or Mm, uh mm. or it's almost a badge of honor that we wear around people love to say that i you know i survived on four hours sleep last Mm. night and Oh, I'm stressed to the hill, like, you know, it's, so it's always, busy right I'm now. so busy. Uh, something my auntie w- once said to me, um, she runs a PR company down in Sydney and um, very successful uh, and has led a very, very busy life. And she said to me a few years ago when I went down and caught up with her, she said, uh, she asked me how I was and I said, I was, I've been busy. Um, mm-hmm. And she said, oh, I've, I'm really sick and tired of people telling me that they're busy. Um, I never want to give that answer to someone again. Um, I want to take control of that. And um, yeah, has really worked to change the way she runs her business to try and make people's lives a little less busy, her colleagues and herself. Um, because yeah, it, it, there's this, it seems like, again, it's this, this badge of honor to be the busiest person out there, but the negative impacts that that can have, um, like actually on your health, not just mental, but physical, um, probably, yeah, isn't given enough weight. Exactly. And if, and if you're too busy to look after your health, it flows that's on. fine. That's fine for a certain amount of time or you know, fine, <laughs> but it's eventually your body will force you to pay attention to your health. And it's, it's sooner or later, basically. You can either do it now and do it preventatively or you can be forced to pay attention to your health later on with a health crisis. So that, that, it, I guess that's, that's the internal environment, but what, what, would, what would you say is the external environment? Well, actually, a couple more things on oh, yeah, internal. Lay it on me. A couple more. Um, so there's, we talked about sleep and sleep will, and recovery in general mm. will greatly affect your internal environment. Mm. And as well, we've talked about movement in the past, so we don't have to delve too much into that, but that movement nutrients, so the yeah. contraction of your muscles and you know the, the movement of your lungs and diaphragm mm. and, and all of these things will greatly, greatly influence the health of all of your bodily systems. And so if you haven't listened to that movement nutrition podcast, very, very worth listening to because that's a very important concept. And the other part of the internal environment is the microbiome. And so this one, it's a, that's a huge rabbit hole as well and probably deserves a, a whole podcast with a microbiome expert. But the, <laughs> and I'm not one. <laughs> no, neither. Neither. I've read a few books and, and podcast, listened to podcasts and so on. But the, the gist is that uh, bacterial cells in our body and on our body 
vastly, vastly outnumber human cells. So uh, some estimates are like 10 to 1. I've heard that they that might be a bit extreme, but basically there's way more bacterial cells in and on our body than human cells and the type and diversity of those bacterial cells can vastly influence our health and function as well. And so, you know, long story short, obviously digestion will be affected because uh, a huge part of our gut and our, uh, a huge a huge part of our gut is the bacteria within there. And so most, a lot of that bacteria that I've just mentioned sits within our gut. And so they're very involved in the digestive process and how much nutrients we can absorb. And so therefore, the type of bacteria within there, this is why people take probiotics and stuff. And, mm. and you know, have you had your inner health plus today? <laughs> <laughs> um, because sort of quote unquote bad bacteria or low diversity and of certain types of bacteria will promote, will will affect your health negatively, but will also keep you wanting and craving certain foods like refined sugars and, you know, bad fats and so on. And so these bacteria, it's like who's controlling who really? Yeah. There's, there's all these bacterial minds that outnumber our cells and they want, they want a certain type of something and they'll, they can influence, they, it's been, you know, very well proven that they can influence your mood and your cravings and, mm. um, you know, certain processes. So, yeah, they're kind of driving you in a, in a big way, which it's is pretty huge, interesting. It's a huge industry now, gut health. I mean, oh, yeah, continuing massive. to grow. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good books on out there on it. And I mean, we're still, I know scientifically, we're still really scratching the surface of what that relationship really means. But we just, we know that it's super important. And it can also obviously affect your immune system in a big way, um, your mental health, you know, related to your mood. Um, gut bacterial issues are closely linked with anxiety and depression and also can affect your sleep quality and efficiency and efficiency. So again, the internal, that's internal environment, obviously bacteria also exist everywhere in our external environment. So even the, the dichotomy between internal and external environments is almost a bit of a false dichotomy because again, we're just part of our our environment, but it's helpful to think about that. Uh, a little bit uh, that dichotomy so that you understand that both uh, people often think of their environment as like everything outside of them but your internal environment matters a lot as well and this comes back to what frank is saying at the beginning of that chapter and and that exposure to the outside world from from birth and how important that is to to building resilience and building um yeah these this yeah resilience to the outside world yeah um, yeah and that that's that that hygiene hypothesis that we were talking about in the ground living episode where if you, you know, vastly, if you sterilize everything and you never expose yourself to bacteria, then you don't get that microbiome, that um, diverse microbiome, which then helps all those other aspects of health. But it also, if you don't get that diverse microbiome, then your immune system is compromised. And so every now when you are exposed to things, you're more, more likely to get sick and then it feeds itself. And we're seeing more and more kids with allergies and autoimmune conditions and all of these things that, yeah. Skin, skin conditions are also highly linked to bacterial problems within the gut and yeah, within the microbiome. So mm. fascinating stuff. So yeah, the external environment, uh, think, things like 
the weather and the climate are, are obvious examples. Mm-hmm. So we all know that sunlight, um, well, heat or cold will influence our genetic expression through, you know, sweating or shivering. You know, all of this is related. Is Sweating is a, a gene expression. Shivering is a gene expression. So th- the environment can vastly influence that. And it's been shown that you know, cold, wet, dark environments can predispose people to, I think it's seasonal affective disorder, like sad. So it'll affect your mood, affect your mental health Mm. and exposure to sunlight obviously is super important for vitamin D production and probably a whole host of other things that we haven't quantified yet, but we know that vitamin D is critical. So that external environment matters a lot and another part of our external environment is our relationships with Mm. other humans and and animals i suppose and pets and our community in general and then uh, actually and those relationships again plenty of studies to show that they are critical for health as well and in fact loneliness is one of i think it's worse than smoking or or equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of how much it increases your risk of all-cause mortality so people who are lonely and don't have strong relationships with family or friends mm. or community are again at much higher risk of health issues and much higher risk of dying which is is i mean I'm going to say it's pretty I was about to say it's pretty crazy but it's not really when you think about it because we're such social animals and and again, we evolved in an, in an environment where those strong bonds tribe. and relationships with our tribe were, we depended on that for survival. And so just because now we no longer sort of quote unquote depend on that for survival in terms of getting food and protecting ourselves doesn't mean that physiologically we, need, we don't need those bonds anymore. We, and Again, you don't need research to tell you that having strong bonds with your family and friends feels really good, mm. um, but it is interesting just how linked that is to uh, long-term health. Mm. And obviously, another part of the external environment, which quickly becomes our internal environment, is food and water. So of course, our food systems have obviously changed vastly, and the types of foods that we're eating in general in the modern world is very different to what we were eating ancestrally. And that's going to have a big impact, a huge impact on our health, obviously, because our whole body is essentially made up of the building blocks that we take in through food, the nutrients that we take in through food. And when you list all of these things in a long list, um, one of them would be enough to have a Mm. negative impact on your health. But when you pile all of these things on top of each other, food, water, relationships, you know, lack of sunlight, and then... The internal systems, lack of movement, lack of diversity, the microbiome, you know, poor poor beliefs and, you know, stressful emotions, stressful, you know. Of course we're going to be sick. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's suddenly we're not wondering why there's such an explosion of chronic disease. Mm. And of course, there's so many, so many factors that go into that explosion of chronic disease. And there are some non-modifiable factors, which means, you know, it's things that we can't change. And of course, there's socioeconomic factors and a whole heap of nuance. But the idea is that we do have a lot more control over our health and our environment than we think. And taking small steps to, to change that and to optimize that is really important. So... Speaking of steps and <laughs> strategies, so 
in the book, in New Old Way, Frank talks about forest bathing or Shinrin-yoku, which is, so there was some studies done in Japan about basically just spending time in the forest and natural environments. And they've found that that really beneficially influences our stress physiology. So the levels of stress hormones in our blood, uh, markers of inflammation, our immune system health, blood pressure, and heart rate variability as well, which Tom and I talked about in the breathing podcast, but it's, it's heart rate variability is essentially a measure of the distance between your heartbeats and so or the rhythm of your heartbeat basically and so if you if your heartbeat is quite variable so say your heartbeat was like one second one second one second one second then that's low heart rate variability but if it was one second 1.2 seconds 1.6 1.3 you know and it sort of varies then that's actually a good sign of uh, nervous system and whole body health and of of parasympathetic nervous system activity which is that rest and digest uh, nervous part of our nervous system that uh, is so poorly lacking in most people which is related to a stressful environment mm. so yeah spending time in the forest is good for you again there you, you, go. <laughs> you don't really need a study to tell you that that feels good but it again it's very cool to have research to show yeah it's physiologically it's really good for you to spend time it's in funny nature. you say that we don't really need a study to back it up but people don't believe it until <laughs> yeah. until it's been researched yeah and, and people uh, go oh wow i should spend more time gee, in maybe i should do it yeah i yeah. knew it felt good but <laughs> so if it, the research is saying it's good yeah and it it's sh- it is. I think in this day and age, it, it does help to do research, and I I, mm. I love and appreciate that there are people going. Absolutely. All right, let's get some research so we can back show it people. And I do find it. I think it's it's always fascinating to to look into that sort of more granular, the granular details of our physiology and how it's affected by certain environments. Mm. But yeah, it should really be the Second null nature. the null <laughs> hypothesis or the common knowledge. Similar to barefoot, it's like it's weird that we have to have research to prove that being barefoot is good for us. Yeah. Um, because that should just be the null, like, of course it's good for us. Or, of course, mechanically that makes the most sense and physiologically that makes the most sense because that's how we've evolved. And similarly with forest bathing, we've evolved in this environment. And I guess that's a, an interesting thing is, is it is it that the forest is healing or is it that the civilization it's the like it's this concept killing. of nature nature deficit disorder or civilization excess disorder have we it's really probably more indicative of the of the destructive power of the urban environment and all of you know the, the destruction of the land rather than the healing power of nature because those low levels of stress and the you know lower blood pressure and the improved immune function and all of these things are our natural state mm. and we've we've just taken ourselves out of that natural state which mm. is what we were talking about before and related to the forest bathing actually i think is the the concept of awe i found this really fascinating yeah, me in too. the book where the actual the emotion of awe as in feeling awe inspired is actually a very healthy emotion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you imagine walking through a forest and you see a, a huge, big, beautiful tree with a whole heap of life 
within it or a, a waterfall, a raging river or a waterfall or just the, the sheer power of nature and something that makes you feel small or maybe witnessing, you know, witnessing a storm in, off in the distance or, a, you know, an amazing sunset or sunrise and getting that feeling like, oh, yeah. wow. That's actually very, very healthy for us. And again, they've done studies on this to show that that's, that feeling of awe is actually associated with decreased inflammation and increased parasympathetic nervous system activity. And it makes people behave more ethically and generously and describe themselves as more connected with other people and with their environment. And yeah, it makes them happier and less stressed. And... I just find that really fascinating. And again, it makes sense, makes sense because in a natural environment, we would be exposed to those awe-inspiring things all the time and, mm. and things that would make us feel small but connected as well. And in the modern, in the new way, in the modern world, then we we kind of don't like things that make us feel small. We're a bit scared of the storms and we're a bit mm. scared of, um, you know huge trees or something that might yeah. fall on us. Well, I don't know if that's a really good example, but you get the idea. We, we, we like to feel big. Our ego likes us to feel big. Waves in the ocean. You, you see yeah. giant waves, you know. Mm. And, uh, and it makes sense. We, we want to be safe, but having those, having those moments where we can really fully be present and experience the awe-inspiring... Habitat in its purest form, really. Yeah, yeah. And... Again, it's cool to know that that's good for us and we should go and expose ourselves to things that are awe-inspiring. And a few more interesting... I'm, I'm calling them human zoo studies, <laughs> uh, which is basically, you know, yes, you can look at the benefits of being immersed in nature and feeling that awe, but interesting couple of studies on... So there was one where... Room, so in a hospital, uh, rooms with views of natural and garden-like settings, mm. um, people in the patients in those rooms who were who were matched to patients in rooms that were uh, I think they were just facing brick. Mm. The patients in the garden, the views with the gardens and the natural settings had shorter post-operative stays. They had fewer negative comments in the nurse's <laughs> notes uh, and they took fewer analgesics um, than the other patients in the brick wall rooms or the, with no natu natural view. And they've also found that running on a treadmill while looking at rural pleasant scenes hmm. uh, had better outcomes than urban unpleasant scenes. So uh, better psychological outcomes and also lower blood pressure. And this is just running, literally just running on a treadmill. Wow. Yeah. But the difference between looking at two different scenes. Imagine if they ran outside. Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. And uh, they've also found that there's a relationship between residential greenness. So I guess the presence of nature and plants and trees in residential areas with birth weight so they reckon that uh fetal development is influ is beneficially influenced by greenness in the environment so mm. again indicators of the more the closer you can get to a natural state of being and a natural environment the better it is for all aspects of your physiology mm. so 
that brings us to yeah some environmental designs and some things to do so mm. again we've got i guess the the local your local habitat and then your more global habitat so yeah. your local habitat is the things we were talking about in terms of your home and your garden and your neighborhood and so there are certain things that you can design especially around your own home and garden if you've got a backyard or, and everything that can bring you closer to that natural state of being. Mm. So something that we've started to do is put a few more plants around everywhere. We're still kind of figuring out exactly how to <laughs> Baby keep <steps>. them alive <laughs> for a long term. But uh, yeah, one of them's up there is kind of struggling. But <laughs> but having a plant, having plants around, is a, it's just very pleasing on the eyes, mm. and again has been shown to be to be good for you as well. Mm. And so that's a good thing. Uh, even just doing some of your own gardening in some way. Interesting talking to Georgina this week, um, uh, yes. who's one of the footnotes um, based in Melbourne. And, and I've been talking to her just recently about sharing her story. And, and I think we're going to get her on a podcast pretty soon as well. Um, yeah, we got a, her ebook. Actually, it's a great chance to plug her yeah, ebook definitely. because it's epic called rewilding in suburbia and that's well that's pretty much exactly what (laughs) we're looking at here Mm. with this local habitat is yes people live in the city we can't all move out rural and move to the bush but there are a lot of things that you can do in your city environment to Mm. to simulate that or to rewild a little bit in suburbia which yeah and like i I don't want to steal her thunder because i'm sure she'll go into detail about Mm. it but she was living off grid for, for several years and um, with her two young boys and then had to move back to the city uh, because of work uh, with, with her husband. And uh, it wasn't until COVID, in the midst of COVID, when her boys were sort of trapped inside, having to study online and uh, strapped to computer screens for boys that used to catch a boat to school in Mallacoota uh, and were immersed in nature, to then have that, yeah, that real sort of closed-in online environment mm. uh she freaked out she <laughs> just she couldn't couldn't stand watching them go through that and wanted to ensure that a they got outside more but, but b um yeah more families could live that way and, and, and again i don't want to steal her thunder but what she's described of what she's been able to build at home with an aquaponics setup and the fact that they grow their own fish to to eat uh, and their own vegetables and it's all a self-sustaining um, habitat that she's mm. built in their backyard. Um, it's it's so so inspiring to see someone who is doing that in the heart of the city and is encouraging people to do the same. And we are far far from that with what we're doing so far. But we're we're creating a space uh, with Bush One where mm-hmm. we'll be able to escape to, to to go do that. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of going to be our second home out mm. of TFC Bush One. And a place where it's you know, very immersed in nature, but in a sense, a little bit of a retreat. But we, you know, we'll plan to be growing our own food and, and building those skills and then eventually uh, starting up, I guess, more of a, you know, a city based or a, a closer to the city based mm. area where we can do more of that as well. It's pretty hard when you're in an apartment. I think, I think, you know, we've had a few cracks at growing herbs, actually, like some and the sunlight on our balcony is not ideal. It tends to kill things pretty quick, mm. especially little fragile herbs. <laughs> um, but, you know, even if you are in an apartment or somewhere that doesn't have much of a backyard, there's generally some way to find a way to get in 
touch with nature, whether it's, yeah, if you've got a good backyard, trying to grow your own food, if you've got minimal space and getting some pot plants and learning to care for them and you're not going to do it perfectly the first time um, unless you're a genius, <laughs> unless you're you know, a natural green thumb. But the process of trial and error and, and doing your best to work with nature as much as you can in the environment that you've got is very rewarding and yeah that's just a really great way to to do that and I guess in terms of neighborhood as well there's generally a lot of community gardens and like the farmer's market that we go to mm. doubles as a, a community garden it's called the city farm uh, northeast street city farm nursery and that's such an epic place and there's people that yeah, you, you grow um, grow your own food there in certain plots. And I know Richie from Perform360, where we, we held a uh, workshop there the other day and have held multiple events there, actually. It's an epic gym. Mm. Richie, uh, he also runs community gardens in Mitchelton. And I know that they're around everywhere. And, and I, I just connected with um, a group called the Mini Farm Project, uh, mm. who are, you know, again, doing a similar thing where they've they build community gardens and then all of the vegetables and fruit that they grow at the community gardens are then donated to charities. So there are plenty of options out there now. More and more people are starting to do this sort of thing. But it's not just, I guess, the the contact with nature that you get through that, but that comes back to the external environment and community and, and, and yeah. relationships that you Huge. build. Because I know when you walk through those markets and you get to interact with stall holders and and just overhear conversations that people are having at stalls uh, about where the food came from or... Um, yeah and that that deepens your relationship with food as well yeah it it feels good it feels bloody good and again there are studies that show that community um the i guess the shared community gardens concept can be very very good for mental health and depression and anxiety and and yeah rebuilding that connection like you said not only with nature but with your community and and building those uh, deeper relationships and yeah, there's just so much in it and so many variables and probably heaps of variables that we don't even know about yet. But mm. it's if it's logical, it makes sense, it feels good. I guess as well, there are things that you can add to your space to improve that environment, but there are things you can probably take away um, that mm, true. You, don't, you don't necessarily need. Um, we used to have a TV that sat on this cabinet um, and we haven't probably had it for a few months now and... Haven't missed it. Haven't missed it at all. The microwave broke the other day and we sort of had a conversation and decided, do we really need it? Why do we even have a microwave? Oh, we occasionally heat up a hot beverage if it gets too cold. Oh. We can work around that. Either. Yeah. And how much better does it feel to have A, all that added bench space, but to not have a big microwave staring at you or a big TV staring at you yeah. when you come into the living room and to have plants instead? And it, it's, it seems like little subtle, you know, almost insignificant things, but it actually makes a huge difference to how good you feel when you walk into the apartment. We've had lots of compliments as well. People come in, oh, geez, it looks nice in here. It looks different. Like, what do you, what do you change? Oh, no TV. Oh, it's, now it's a bookshelf with plants and a chessboard. <laughs> and there are still things that you need yeah. to, to be able to function. Like, we're not saying start a campfire in the middle of your living room <laughs> and get rid of the lights, but... Yeah, little things if you look around your space and, and try and work out how you can adapt because this is the habitat that your home is, the habitat that you spend most of your time in um, to, yeah. to a large degree. Yeah. It's, it's where you sleep, it's where you eat. Mm. Um, so 
why not start there? And you have the most control over what goes exactly. on in your home. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very good, very good place to start. And then that would flow into, I guess, more our global habitat, which mm. is, I guess, the condition of our country and then the earth in general. And when I say country, you know, partly it's, you know, our country is Australia or whatever country you're in. But when you think about the country, that's like, you know, all the farms and the nature and all the places that aren't the city, you know, like there's the city and then there's the country. So the, I guess, a a huge part of what um, influences the country is our food systems. And so there's a lot of stuff coming out lately i'm sure actually it's i'm sure it's been coming out a lot you know for a long time but i guess we're delving a lot more into lately and mac has had some great experience with people is the concept of regenerative agriculture and Mm. so again without that probably deserves its own podcast and we do have a little bit of a plan to hopefully get someone on to chat about it but the modern industrial process of agriculture and the way we farm food in this monoculture way where we just have one single organism, say wheat or Mm. corn, grown on a huge plot of land, and that's the only organism that grows there, and we spray everything else, we kill everything else, Mm. because any pests or anything that might eat that crop that we want, we just kill, Mm. and what's what we're figuring out and what the um, scientific community is figuring out is just how terrible that is for the earth and for the soil and soil health is actually probably the most important thing for environmental health including climate change and global warming yeah and i i think it wasn't until someone i can't even remember who who said it to us um but the there's a big focus, I guess, now on sustainability. Um, it's Felix. Felix, yeah, uh, and and Felix sort of said we can't we can't just keep on focusing on sustainability because we need to reverse what we've already done. If we continue to sustain, uh, we've already in. done too much, a, a, a hell of a lot of damage up there um, and down there uh, in the soil and and in the atmosphere, and we need to reverse what we're doing and we need to mm. regenerate um and and yeah the echo valley farm um yeah tell out, us a bit about that out west of brizzy uh with my other business stories told um we went out and, and met the brain family um janita and randall and their two kids uh eli and bridie and seven years ago they were they were social workers living in the city and um they just got jack of city life and decided they needed a break from that and they bought a little block of land and decided that they were going to be farmers uh they'd never farmed before in their life they had no idea really what they were doing but they wanted to take their approach to humans and and that's caring and supporting humans through their social work and they figured it can't be too hard to apply that to the land and to, to animals because they saw this need for someone to do something uh and they wanted to be a part of that and they bought 200 chooks and then eventually chucked all those chooks in the back of a caravan and bought a bigger property at Goombra, um near Warwick, just over the Great Dividing Range here in Queensland. And they've been able to build this regenerative farm. Uh, it's called Acroecology, what, what, what Randall and Janine are doing. And they have pigs, they have cows, they have chooks um, and 
all of the animals are constantly moving. Um, they're moving from plot to plot to allow the soil to regenerate, to, to allow the, the manure from the cows to then be picked at by the chickens and then fertilize, fertilize the, mm. the chickens, fertilize the soil and the pigs eat, uh, it's called brewer's porridge. It's, it's waste from a couple of, uh, brewers here in Brisbane from two of our biggest breweries. Uh, they get free brewer's porridge from them and, and the, the pigs eat that. And he calls them these sort of walking <laughs> compost bins and, mm-hmm. and they, work in harmony and and it's working um they have a community of of customers that they supply monthly their their meat and eggs uh and which will soon include us yes we've jumped on board because it 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 was just so eye-opening to see what they were doing and they were so passionate about what they were doing because they realized how important their habitat was and, and not just for the greatness, for the goodness of the earth and for, for saving the planet and caring for the for the animals and, and, and they say they've got four goods and, and their four goods are is it good for the land? Is it good for the animals? Is it good for the farmer? And is it good for the consumer? And it's in that order that they make every decision on that property. The land and animals first and mm-hmm. then the farmer and consumer second. Mm-hmm. And if it ticks all of those boxes, then they'll do it. Um, but... Yeah, it's not just for the good of, for the greater good, but it's for the good of their children too and for the good of their family. They, they work 90-hour weeks, both of mm. them. Uh, the family's taken one holiday off, off the farm in seven years, but their kids were the most genuine, yeah, inspirational young kids, both teenagers and uh, who who were more than happy to be working on the land and have a genuine affinity with with the land that they they live on yeah and the animals because it's, it's a way of life really it's mm. it's fine it's that's such a deep deep connection with the earth and and just really understanding and respecting that the earth is an ecosystem and the you can't just monoculture farm one organism there's it's the interactions of all these organisms with the plant you know animals with the plants with the soil that actually creates the ecosystem that we need and it's the opposite of that the the monoculture that is actually destroying ecosystems and destroying uh you know or you know monoculture that could be of grains and and whatever or it could be the factory farming these you know these practices where it's oh we're just gonna we're only gonna grow cows here and we're gonna feed them all these grains versus the cows are gonna eat the grass and the pigs are gonna eat the compost that you know and all of these things and they all work together to feed into each other and there's a really really well I highly recommend watching Max's story on the on the Echo Valley Farms. Yeah, um, we'll chuck a, told. We'll chuck a link in the in the uh, show notes. And also a more long form, uh, very mm. inspirational documentary is called Kiss the Ground on Netflix, and that really goes deep into all of that and showing that yes, reg- regenerative agriculture takes time and and patience and and skills to learn, but it actually can be far more yeah it's far better for not only the land but also for the farmer um and in terms of i guess connection to the land and the animals but also uh financially can be really rewarding as well because you get better produce and you get 
people who really care about you supporting you. And I guess if, if people haven't seen that or, or, or know how it all works, the, the idea is that soil is really you know, a carbon sequestering machine. And, and, and Randall sort of says it in the story that we could spend millions and millions of dollars trying to develop a machine that can suck all of the carbon that we put up in the atmosphere back out, um, but they already exist and that, that is soil. And, and plants. And plants. plants in and the soil. That, yeah. um, that relationship uh, is the only way that we can reverse the impacts that we've, we've had. Mm. Um, and, and like you just said, I mean, there is, I think, this big belief that Wow, it's, it's is it too far gone? Do we have enough time to to reverse all of this? And that I guess leads to another story that I've done, funnily enough, with a guy called Habitat Matt, yeah. <laughs> uh, and his company Habitat. Um, he was a stunt actor uh, who was working at a Seven Eleven. Who two decades ago decided, bugger this, I'm going to get out there and do something for the planet and he started this company and what he does is when developers or mining companies uh, come through and they obviously clear land uh, and we could argue until the hills you know until the cows come home the negative impacts that's having but they have an obligation as, as part of that to restore some of that land and habitat Matt is the guy that they get in to do it and what he has developed over the last two decades is a, a system or I, I guess an approach that he's fine-tuned and fine-tuned uh, that he calls rapid rehabilitation and what he does is essentially uses modern agricultural techniques to regenerate cleared land and there's a place um, at Pimpamar on the northern Gold Coast, Gainsborough Greens. Um, he had a 48 hectare block I believe that was completely dessert it was it was barren dirt it was there was nothing there mm. um and i mean he we've got the drone pictures and, and you can see them in the story but he's been able to turn this completely cleared block in six years seven years into a, a thriving ecosystem uh, by using these modern agricultural techniques to essentially um, sow thousands and thousands of seeds and just let it go. It took him five days and him and his team five days to put all these seeds out there, you know, made sure uh, he was putting the right ones out there and, and understood the environment and, and the landscape and what would work and what wouldn't. And now they've had people from the Queensland Herbarium come out and tested and, and have found that there are enough native animals and, and, and wildlife and uh, and flora and fauna there to class it as um, an endangered ecosystem. So it's gone from extinct to endangered and that's only going to improve in, in six years. Mm. Uh, they haven't been able to class it as an endangered ecosystem yet because under the rules in Queensland, it has to have been that way for 10 years to class it as that. But they can't believe that he's been able to do this in such a short period of time. And what he says is, you know, we just need to get out there and do it. It's possible um, to reverse extinction if we just have the right mindset and the right approach and we, we give it a crack. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't have to be planting, ten, you know, sowing tens of thousands of seeds on a 48-hectare block. It can be as simple as going once a month to a tree planting day with a community organization yeah. and planting a tree. Uh, you know, if you plant 20 trees once a month for four years i think he said you know you're being yeah in awe of, of what you're able to achieve 
especially if a lot of individuals did the same thing. If everyone believed they could make a difference and everyone planted 20 trees a month or like 10,000 people planted 20 trees a month, suddenly that scale gets huge. And uh, speaking of planting trees, actually we spent, I think it was maybe a month, last month, we spent a good day with Reforest Now, which is mm-hmm. our, our partners uh, who plant trees based on how many beans we sell. So now in the interest of not just sustainability, but regeneration, each bean we sell plants two trees with, with Reforest Now, which is amazing. And we've actually been donating to them for the last, since we launched the timber beans, which is about a year now. Mm. And so over 250 over, trees, over 250 trees, which is, which is cool. Again, a small amount, but better than zero trees mm. and can only keep going up. <laughs> And, and they're being planted here in Australia, which yeah, is awesome. Right, right. Pretty much in our backyard down in Byron Bay. And I think they do some in the Daintree as well. Mm. And anyway, we were... Obviously, COVID heavily restricted our ability to do any of those planting days. But we saw an opportunity last month to go down. And, you know, we were really keen to get our hands dirty. But it was even better than we expected, really. It was, I mean, first of all, it was very inspiring to spend time with Maximo who Maximo Botaro, who's the founder of Reforest Now, and he he really has got some knowledge about ecological he knows his restoration. Stuff, and he's not a CEO in a suit. He was nah. he was drilling the holes to plant yeah. these thousands of uh, saplings. Like yeah, bloody inspiring dude. He's out there in the thick of it, doing it all, and pumping his tunes and geeing everyone up. Yeah. And yeah, he had a good chat with us and. And Mac also did a story on him, which... That'll be airing this Friday. Airing this Friday. Perfect. Perfect timing. Um, But yeah, they take volunteers. They're always open to people going on and helping. And we're definitely going to be going down for more of those tree planting days because it's so satisfying. I mean, it's a bit of a... it's It's a double win because not only are you helping the habitat by obviously planting trees, um, but it comes back to that awe-inspiring, mm. uh, you know, the, the benefit of the awe because I was in awe the, the whole day. It, mm. it felt so, so good to yeah. have your hands in in the earth and, and be getting dirty and to be surrounded by other people who had taken time out of their Fridays uh, to, to do this as well. Yeah, and you're getting, you know thousands of reps of squats going and split squats yeah. and you know car- farmers carries and all of this exercise or <laughs> all this movement uh and it's for a purpose it's task driven and it's for a good purpose and we came out of that day just feeling so fulfilled and so keen to, to do more and again of it's not about quitting your day job and going and planting trees every day although that's a possibility i think with by actually working for them mm. but you know just taking one day a month or one day a quarter to to volunteer your time and go and do that and it's not about sac- it's not really about sacrificing your time to do that it's about choosing to prioritize that time in nature and that time helping to regenerate our landscape in our own backyard because it's good for us but it it is so important for the environment and our climate and again it's kind of it's still kind of selfish because we need the climate and the environment to continue surviving as a human race if our food systems and soil the way if the way that is going if it keeps going that way we're not going to be able to sustain it's just not sustainable (laughs) um and so in one sense it's good you know we're we're putting our putting ourselves out there for the good of the environment but 
you can also view that as selfish in a way, in a good way that, yes, we actually want to keep living and we want our children or our future children to be able to live on this planet and their children and so on. And I mean, we've heard this message <laughs> a thousand times and I think, you know, not, no, you're not, people aren't sick of it, but you hear this message and you go, well, what can I really do? This is a great place to start. Yeah. Go and plant some trees, connect with Reforest Now or Habitat Matt or support a, a, a local regenerative agriculture, CSA. Go to a farmer's market. Go to a farmer's market. An organic farmer's market. Yeah. And yeah, connect with your food system, connect with your environment, understand and respect nature, uh, get more nature time in your, in your daily life or in your weekly life or whatever. And little things add up. If everyone did that, make a huge huge difference so we're not perfect we're still <laughs> we're still not. figuring it out we're still like how to keep these plants alive <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and but the you know there's perfection in progress and you know we're we're looking for ways to um progress our connection with nature in that way and we're going to keep doing it and we'll keep sharing our journey along the way mm. and hopefully as a community, we can all make a real difference. Absolutely. It's probably a good place to finish up. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Cheers, guys.